Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, and it's very nice to see so many of you who have forsaken this lovely autumnal afternoon outside for a lunchtime discussion of this new book, Late Victorian into Modern, co-edited by Laura Marcus, Kirsten Shepherd Barr, and Michelle Mendelssohn. Unfortunately, Michelle's not with us this afternoon. Um, we are incredibly fortunate to have both Laura and Kirsten with us here to discuss the book, though, and as we'll be hearing, it's a book which offers us a wide-ranging interdisciplinary perspective on the literature and culture of the late Victorian period and the modern period, with this very fascinating preposition into in the book. Most books tend to be static affairs, but to see this as a very dynamic, uh, progressive, forward-looking one is something that I've certainly taken from reading it over this last weekend. And it's a book that very excitingly contains work by senior scholars, established names and emerging scholars from around the world and from a wide range of institutions and reflects the diversity of work going on in the field. Already, very impressively, since its publication last year, it has been shortlisted for the Modernist Studies Association Book Prize for an edition anthology or essay collection. My name is Philip Bullock, and I am Professor of Russian Literature and Music here at Oxford, and also the new Director of Torch. It's a great pleasure to be opening the second of this term's Book at Lunchtime discussions, and to be chairing today's event. And as a modern linguist with a foot, or well, one foot, in musicology, um, I have also been uh, extraordinarily impressed by the diversity of languages, cultures and perspectives in this book um, as well and its continental and indeed global dimensions. Our event today involves academics from across humanities in Oxford, and it's part of our flagship event series, Book at Lunchtime, a fortnightly series of book-sized discussions of books by a range of commentators here. And do look out for uh, the series, uh, further events in the series on the flyers on the side of the table, as well as, I think, flyers for the book itself. Our event today also ties in with our annual headline series, Humanities and Identities, and there's much to be said about both of those topics in this book. It's a series that brings together researchers, practitioners, policymakers, creative thinkers, and wider communities interested in identity and self-identity in the past, present, and into the future. You can find much more about this series on our website, as usual. So now I'd like to move on to introducing our distinguished panel Laura Marcus is Goldsmith Professor of English Literature here at Oxford and a Fellow of New College. She's also a Fellow of the British Academy. Her research and teaching interests are predominantly focused on the 19th and 20th century, looking at literature and culture, <coughs> life writing, modernism, Virginia Woolf, Bloomsbury culture, contemporary fiction and literature and film. Her publications include Dreams of Modernity, Psychoanalysis, Literature, Cinema, 2014, Auto slash Biographical Discourses, Theory, Criticism, Practice, 1994, Virginia Woolf, 1997, republished 2004, and The Tenth Muse, Writing About Cinema in the Modernist Period, 2007. Next to Laura is Kirsten Shepherd Barr, Professor of English and Theatre Studies and Tutorial Fellow at St Catherine's College. Her research interests encompass two main areas, the interaction between theatre and science, and the relationship between modernism and theatrical performance. 
Among her publications are Modern Drama, A Very Short Introduction, 2016 from OUP, and Theatre and Evolution from Ibsen to Beckett, Columbia University Press, 2015, which was supported by a Levy Hume Research Fellowship. Kirsten works regularly with theatres as a consultant on productions and on outreach, and has been very closely involved in the work of Torch, primarily through a number of its networks. She is also currently serving as Knowledge Exchange Champion for the Humanities at Oxford. We're exceedingly lucky to be joined this lunchtime by two discussants, Michael Bentley and Charlotte Jones. Michael is Emeritus Professor of Modern History at the University of St Andrews and a member of the Oxford History Faculty. He's published numerous monographs and edited volumes dealing mainly with modern British history as well as the theory and history of historiography and he is currently writing a comparative study of Western historiography since the Enlightenment. And here on my right is Charlotte Jones, who is Departmental Lecturer in English at St Hilda's College, Oxford. She has recently completed a PhD in Edwardian fiction at UCL, in which she focused on experiments in realist narratives during the Edwardian period, paying particular attention to novels by Joseph Conrad, H.G. Wells, Arnold Bennett and Mary Sinclair. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce uh, and to ask uh, our four speakers to pick up the debate. What we all have is uh, introductions and comments by Charlotte and Michael, responses by Laura and Kirsten. We may have a little bit of discussion amongst members of the panel, depending on what questions come up there, and then we will be very happy to throw questions open to you in the audience. So... Charles, I think you're scheduled to, to begin. Thank you. I'll let me come and sit in the middle. If you wish to sit or stand, however you feel most comfortable. I'll stay sitting. Um, can everyone hear me? My voice is a bit under strain today. Um, well, I was going to start by saying that uh, I'd noticed in the course of my research for the talk something interesting, but I find that it's actually on the handout, so uh, my prep looks less thorough now. Um, anyway, but I, I noticed... Um, on the website and, and here that the description of this book um, by OUP states its intention to provide, this is under features, uh, wide-ranging and interdiscipl interdisciplinary discussions of the literature and culture of the period using original essays by international experts in the field. Um, and the use of those singular nouns, the period and the field, um, struck me as, as quite curious because as Philip said when introducing the talk, they imply an endeavour that seemed almost precisely at odds with what I took to be implicit in the book's title, which is Late Victorian into Modern. Um, in other words, the, the title seemed to signal that the book would explore a kind of ephemeral juncture or transition between two distinct periods or fields in literary history. Um, as the authors write in their introduction, Late Victorian into Modern emphasises the in-between, not one period or the other, but the into, the gradual changeover from one to the next. Um, so I've been considering in, in the course of preparing this talk how to account for this slight, but I think quite revealing slate of hand in the book's marketing. Um, and it brought into particular focus for me one of the current pressures in literary studies, which I think humbly... Uh, the book might be responding, which is the near total dominance of the concept of periodisation. Um, so to take a step back for a moment, um, our entire system of literary education as it currently exists reifies the period as its central historical concept. We move from medieval to renaissance, 16th, 17th 
18th centuries, uh, Romantic, Victorian, modern, postmodern, contemporary. This is the way we structure teaching programs, both undergraduate and postgraduate. Um, it's the way we structure the academic job market, of which I am immensely familiar recently, <laughs> uh, but also publishing lists, professional membership bodies, journals, so on and so on. Um, its dominance amounts to what one critic recently called a collective failure of imagination and will on the part of the literary profession. Um, conceptual challenges to periodization have existed pretty much since its inception as a way of organizing history in the 19th century. <clears throat> but what I think is more remarkable is that over the course of those two centuries, they have had almost zero effect. Um, Period-based literary study has thus far survived all the changes in critical approach that have characterized modern literary study, uh, from the initial dominance of movements like new criticism to its later supplanting by critical theory, cultural studies, and I think so far at least digital humanities. So that remains to be seen what impact that's going to have. Um, so what forms have these challenges taken? Well, the readiest criticism that is invoked of periodization is that establishing any historical epoch, whether Victorian or modern, is an inherently arbitrary act. Periods are founded on symbolic quirks of historical contingency, things like the births and deaths of monarchs, the turns of decades or centuries, um, occasionally the publication of key literary works. One can easily enough imagine another group of periods which would in turn inculcate a radically different historical order. So what, what we think of as being Victorian fiction might look completely different from the perspective of, of, say, an imaginary scholar of the 1850 to the 1950 period. If we went from something like the Great Exhibition to the Festival of Britain and used those as our framing devices. Um, here, the point is not that periodization is, is in and of itself limiting, but also that the current configuration of periods constitutes an evaluative order. Periodization in this way not only codifies period-based literary study as a method, but it's also given us a canonical set of periods, which in turn inculcates an unyielding canonical tradition of texts. Um, for periods, and, and this is the second common criticism in addition to their arbitrary nature, periods also instantiate notions of totality. So insofar as periods act as definitions, what they conceptualize is a product of a, a sort of set of central characteristics and then deviations from those characteristics. And in general, no matter how extensive the deviations might be, it's that central concept or sort of inner essence of, of what Victorian or modern is that we keep returning to. The ongoing dominance of a core version of modernism, for example, um, which remains relentlessly unmodified by the arrival of new canonical authors that have increasingly written about over the last 20 years, um, offers a fairly clear example of how that process works in practice, even as scholars agree that the, the arrival of these new non-canonical authors should change the definition of modernism. Um, I, think, I think the reality is that what we end up doing is, is trying to place these new authors in relation to pre-existing terms of, of literary innovation or literary value. Um, and you get, a, you get caught in a sort of catch-22 situation. Um, so the idea of the period here becomes a way of controlling knowledge, of initiating the search for some essential ethos. 
Um, such use of period terms is, is fundamentally ahistorical. Um, and falling back on my, on my PhD, uh, I want to cite Conrad as <laughs> an interesting example. Um, many of his major works are Victorian and Edwardian in a sort of strictly historical sense, but he's very rarely discussed um, in light of contemporaries like Arnold Bennett, say, or Wells, or Galsworthy, um, <coughs> even though the latter two he dedicated two of his books to. Um, instead, he, he usually forms part of a sort of onward march to modernism that goes from Henry James to Ford Maddox Ford in, in an immediate sense, I suppose. Um, <coughs> so not only do periods disrupt the continuity of cultural processes then, um, but within and across periods there are established conventions, um, sort of subtle barriers or compartments within these compartments um, that create distance, I suppose, between the act of literary production and, and the act of literary reading. Uh, it's impossible, I think, to think about any historical period without characterising it and, and hence, in a sense, fictionalising it. Um, all this, I think, to finally come back round to the book at hand, um, all this becomes a particularly fraught enterprise when we start thinking about Victorian and modern. Um, partly because of the modernists' own <coughs> mythographies of parthenogenesis and rupture and um, Ezra Pound's Make It New and Virginia Woolf's Human Character Change on or around December 1910. Um, I think the precise dates from which Victorian shades into modern um, are subject to debate, partly because Queen Victoria's death in 1901 feels... Um, unsatisfactory, I think, when we try to reconcile... That's one way to put it. Okay. <laughs> um, but it, it doesn't work when we attempt to reconcile that, that kind of arbitrary decimal chronology with, with a meaningful way of, of characterising this, this transition. Um, so late Victorian becomes modern at some point between, for instance, the Second World War and the First World War, or... Um, some people take it from the wild trials and, and Jude the Obscure outrage in 1895 and the rainbows of sanity trial in, in 1915. They become um, sort of way markers. Um, others take a sort of broader sense of the symbolist aesthetics of the 1890s and the arrival of an international avant-garde in the 1910s. Um, and in this sense, I think late Victorian to modern does join a considerable array of critical work that's already out there that seeks to challenge these dichotomies of Victorian and modern and, and seeks to get away from this teleological narrative of, of the origins of modernism, of, of where modernism came from. Um, but I, I think it also, in my reading at least, goes a bit further than emphasising continuity over rupture. Um, it avoids, for instance, all the problems that we get into with things like the long 19th century, which is one of those ways that critics have, have I suppose, tried to cope with the recognition of the inadequacy of periods for thinking about um, transitions. Um, and their inadequacy as a frame for the kind of questions that we want to ask about context. Um, but but it, it still seems to me that our collective desire to remain ultimately inside periods is illustrated by that tendency to extend them rather than cross them, uh, if, if, that makes, if that makes sense, the distinction. Um, late Victorian is modern 
by contrast, I found transgressive rather than expansive. Um, it doesn't completely dispense with periodization, obviously. Uh, and, but I think by, by bisecting this period, which, which is taken as 1880 to 1920, I think, that's, mm -hmm. that's right. Um, I think by, by, by Bisecting that broader period, it reminds us that, that periods are, they are arbitrary um, and, and they are at best a sort of heuristic device to provide perspective and panorama um, and depth and definition to questions. And, and if the conventional ones don't fit the subjects that we wish to portray, there's nothing to stop us resizing or reshaping, um, zooming in or, or panning out. We could introduce new macro or micro periodizations to open our eyes to issues occluded by old paradigms like Victorian um, and modern. Um, but it would also therefore enable us to continue to look um, at issues that would remain invisible if we despair of applying any kind of paradigm of, of literary or cultural periodization whatsoever. There are, there are risks, I think, inherent in dismissing that sense of literary context as well. Um, late Victorian into modern then for me belongs intimately to the negations that it disrupts just as, <coughs> there we go it's been coming uh, just as the prominence of disciplines is what gives interdisciplinarity its meaning and power so this book's approach to periodization can illustrate that given definitions boundaries it's a strategy I think that keeps us aware of the ways in which the definitional structures that make knowledge possible do so by making other forms of knowledge harder to see. Um, and among the things that, that get lost in a rigid period-based system, just to return to the title by way of finishing up, um, is I think the actual historical power of a category like modern. Modernity is itself a historical context of sorts. The fact that it doesn't feel like one um, is the result of the way that we think about periods. Modern ends up feeling too general or too ephemeral or um, something that, that anybody can feel in, in whatever period they live. It's not fixed. Uh, it doesn't give us an anchor. Um, and I think the problem is that the structural relationship between particular and general that's produced by periodization encourages certain kinds of questions and certain kinds of answers, and it discourages or makes impossible asking others. Um, so I think this book, it may not have all the answers, but I do think it's a spur to at least ask new kinds of questions. Um, and in so doing, I think it opens the door for us to question the impact of periodization's dominance in the humanities at the moment. Um, and I think at least, hopefully maybe today, to provoke a debate that makes the context explicit and therefore contestable um, as a form of, of scholarly work. Uh, Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yes, I think I'm glad I don't think anyone's going to feel a spontaneous <laughs> urge to uh, uh, applaud that. That's and I saw cop. both editors quickly scribbling down things there, so either they'll respond to or wish they'd written no, in, no. in their introduction. <laughs> uh, Michael, can I ask you to, sure, to, okay. to respond now to the book? Thanks very much. <coughs> You've already gathered um, from the introduction that I shouldn't be here at all. Um, I'm an innocent bystander in all of this. Um, indeed, you should be mumbling under your breath, what on earth has he got to say about a book <clears throat> that deals with English literature? That is the correct and healthy response. 
um, you're not making it. And the reason you're not making it is partly because you are liberal, inclusive, charitable, pleasant people. But it's also because you've been infected by one of the great saline drips of our age, the one that calls itself interdisciplinarity. <laughs> when that idea started in the 80s and gathered pace in the 90s, it was relatively innocuous. It meant that when we tilled our own garden, what we should do is look over the hedge and see what neighbours were doing, perfectly sensible proceeding. But in our own century, it's tended to turn itself into a large tank which drives through all the hedges and reduces the sort of bocage of the humanities into the inevitable level playing field where everybody can do everything. We feel this really strongly in my subject. Um, fabulous story. Um, one senior member of my faculty uh, was at a, a party and found herself talking to a medic who turned out to be a brain surgeon. But he said, oh, you're in the story. Now, when I retire, the conversation got around to retiring. When I retire, I'm going to write some history. Funny you should say that, said I, heroin. I thought when I retired, I might do some brain surgery. <laughs> <laughs> now, what has this rant got to do with our, our book at lunchtime? Well, in a sense, the book partly provokes it at one level, and uh, I'll come back to that in a minute. What do I admire about the book? I like the title. And the reason I like the title, Quite a Story, it contains no nouns. That's very important. <laughs> because if any nouns had been there, they would have been transition, evolution, development. All those very dangerous nouns to historians, which immediately trigger some sort of progressivist understanding of what's going on, where the subsequent is not simply the thing that follows its prequel, but actually is its destiny in some sense, or what Butterfield used to call its ratification. If I liked the title, I adored the subtitle. <coughs> there isn't one. <laughs> isn't that wonderful? When I opened the envelope, I thought, I know what's going to happen. It's going to be called A Cultural History. I can't tell you how pissed off I am <laughs> with a cultural history. It now adorns every history book that appears on our shelves, from histories of sexuality and women's frocks to the history of gardening. <coughs> you avoided that. And I, for one, am grateful. <coughs> there are many other things that one wants to admire. Um, as you can see from my ranting, I'm less attracted to the ones that are a form of pseudo-historical scholarship. But you can't, obviously, you can't possibly avoid situating historically the literary material that you're discussing. I was attracted more and learned more from those parts of the book where somebody who had been very highly trained in a particular discipline, that of English, was using that discipline in order to show people like me what it reveals. So um, I was interested in uh, Adam Park's very good literary history of the novel and the way that it takes a familiar sort of triptych of, of naturalism and realism and impressionism and breaks it down in a very helpful sort of way. Many of these essays are trying to dislocate, which of course is a, is a very good thing. Uh, I enjoy Michel's piece 
talking about those dark corners of the 90s um, in thinking about aestheticism and decadence and so on. Um, if, as a distant um, commentator, I were allowed to nominate Man of the Match, uh, my man would be a woman. <laughs> and it would be Hannah Sullivan's uh, extraordinary essay on the poetics of the period. A brilliant piece of work. And it's exactly the sort of thing which it actually recalibrates the way the poetry happens. And it seemed to me exactly the sort of thing that should be put in the hands of an undergraduate with the injunction, this is what you are here to understand. This is what it looks like when it's at the top of its game. And I strongly recommend that to anybody. For the rest, it's a very big rest, it's a very big book. You wouldn't believe the subjects that are I've written some of them down, talk to me. Biology, philosophy, psychology, selenography, evolutionary theory, empire, gender, cities, race, cross-dressing, work, autobiographies, journalism, periodicals, illustrations, cinema photography, and the necessary genuflection at the end, bric-a-brac in India. At <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, one level, a very important level, that's fabulous. Uh, we all like Catholicity. A huge book full of very interesting essays on interesting subjects. What's not to like? But there's another level, <clears throat> I think a slightly deeper one, which does raise a question, at least in my mind. And that's to do with the book's status. This is a series called Approaches to English Literature in the 21st Century. It is, in a sense, a manifesto for the way England is, and perhaps should be, in our century. And it's reasonable to raise questions, it seems to me, about what, what the import of that is for England as a subject, as a mode of inquiry. And it raised one particular question in my mind, and I'll finish with it. You all know, uh, when you go to a posh restaurant, when they bring your food, it has a kind of coloured streak across it. <laughs> Is English the subject, the discipline, the inquiry, the approach, is England threatening to turn itself into the smear on every plate in the humanities? And is that very omnipresence some sort of vague signal that the subject in the 21st century will lose the ambition to sustain and serve a significant dish of its own? Make it new. Eton uh, Noir. Um, if we can now ask Gerstmann and Laura to respond uh, to the questions and provocations and comments we've heard. Yes. Hmm. Um, Who'd like to go look, first? Okay, I'd just say thank both Charlotte and uh, Michael very much. Um, we actually, we, we all three met, did we not, at a conference on 
a similar topic in France. That was Rouen, wasn't it? That was in Rouen, yes. Yeah. I will, we will always have Rouen, Michael. <laughs> 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 uh, yeah. um, so that, that, that was by the by. So different questions um, raised here about periodization and, and interdisciplinarity by our two speakers. Perhaps I'll come to that. So my, I suppose um, perhaps less about the book than about the things that Charlotte said. I suppose one question would be, you saying getting away from periodization, but it seemed to me that you were keeping some notion of, of historical um, period or in the integrity of historical period in order to carve up the cake differently, but you're not saying that the academy should start making <coughs> appointments at where period is simply not an issue, where you appoint as, you know, en genre or whatever else, other, other, other kind of category you want to use? Uh, partly that feels a bit above my head. Uh -huh. <laughs> uh, but partly, I mean, I think, isn't the solution a sort of mixed plate mm -hmm. in general anyway? I mean, and that was what comparative literature was originally set up yes. to be before it became this sort of world literature's mm -hmm. system. Uh, right. To bring that in. Yes, and it might work across yeah. all kinds of historical... Yeah. Yeah. Periods. Yeah. So I suppose yeah. we'd have to bring historicism here, which meant that the discipline became very rooted in context. Yeah. And then with the move to, if we have made that move towards what is being called or was being called the new formalism, then in fact periodization might play much less of a role in that in that context. Yeah. Or at least in one definition of context, which is historical sure. context. There are other. Yeah, other ways of thinking yeah. about it. Okay. Um, I'll let Kirsten yeah. say something about the actually the. the, the the things we were doing in the book, but just to pick up on Michael's point about the smear on the plate. The smear <laughs> on the plate. Um, I, I think it's true that literature has always policed its borders and boundaries much less fiercely than most humanities subjects, or than many humanities subjects, not just English literature, but literature more generally, mm. much, much less than philosophy or history, and there would be interesting questions to to ask about that. Um, is that because our subject is always words and writing and rhetoric and expression and and those form a part of every humanities discipline? Mm. Um, I suppose the thing that's really on my mind, the essence of the thing, what is it to be a discipline in the 21st century? We could have a lunchtime bash mm -hmm. on that because the whole notion seems to me to be and not just in it, I think you know, across the across the humanities there's a, a predisposition to move away from what once would have been regarded as sort of core activities into sort of more something more more of a penumbra. Mm. And it was that that I felt uh, in <coughs> reading your book that it's it's all great fun and it's lovely to have all this catalyst in. But uh, is there a sense in which you're spreading yourself too thin. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Do you want to come in on that question? Because your work is yes. crosses. Yeah. Yes, no, I mean, I'm really glad these things have come up. Um, I think it's clear that there's, there's good interdisciplinarity and there's bad interdisciplinarity. And I've been fascinated by this topic um, because it drives, it drives my own work. And I'm constantly aware of it, um, as I specialize in the relationships between theater and science literature and science more, more broadly. And there have been some very interesting um, books that have looked at this, like Barry and Bourne's Interdisciplinarity, 2013, has been, that's been really interesting. And there's, I can't remember who wrote the recent one, also called Interdisciplinarity, but it, it begins with um, 
the, re, the need to resist the grab yourself a neuroscientist uh, idea that drives much interdisciplinarity in the humanities. Like, you know, get out there and find a scientist, embed yourself in a lab um, for the sake of it. And I think that's the worry is that A, it's for the sake of it, B, it's driven by um, forces like funding rather than by intellectual inquiry uh, necessarily as, as a sort of driver. So it, that broadly does um, really interest me a lot and I think you're right, we need, we need a discussion of that. At the same time that I think, um, I think our, our book has good interdisciplinarity. <laughs> um, because of the thing you've, you mentioned when you spoke about some of the chapters that do, uh, that do, they don't just nip in and borrow from another field, but they actually require a, a real engagement with it. So you've got chapters on the sciences by Rachel Crossland, um, and, uh, and I think there are three or four chapters that really Tiffany, delve into the Tiffany sciences. Tiffany Watt-Smith, William Greenslade. And that was one of our endeavors, actually, in, in shaping the, the sections of the book. We really wanted to have some in-depth engagement and reciprocity, rather than sort of that flitting um, hummingbird way of nipping into a field and then nipping out of it and sort of being untouched. So I think, I think that was our real um, our motivation for wanting to expand, as well as representing, sort of trying to model some some good interdisciplinarity. Mm -hmm. So, Philip, do you want to come in at all? Because you're as torch director. Yes. This is your. Yes, our whole raison d'être has been uh, put in put under the microscope. <laughs> um, as someone who does interdisciplinary work but doesn't use the word, or I'm careful about using the word, I, I hear precisely where this is coming from. My my gloss on this would be. There are many types of interdisciplinary approach, but there are ones where you have a relatively stable object and then you interrogate it from multiple perspectives. So you might put the novel up against science or, mm. or technology. Or, and then there are things that I work on, uh, which is opera and domestic music making in the Russian Empire. Now, I need a set of disciplinary tools to understand this. The interdisciplinarity is not imposed. If I come at this saying, I'm a literary scholar, I'm going to see one thing. If I come at it saying, I'm a musicologist, I will see it a different way. And I feel the challenge of it is to respond to sometimes the way the material is asking you to look at it in a certain way, and also to respect the fact that contemporary academic disciplines are themselves highly contingent, historically rooted, forms of practice, of legitimization, of hierarchy. The word discipline has a, perhaps a neutral meaning of what we do, but it also has that sort of Foucauldian idea that we're being marshaled into thinking in a certain way. And I'm very aware that a lot of my subjects would not have known whether they were literary scholars or musicologists or perhaps a thought a cultural historian. Um, so so I'm, I'm, I'm very interested in the tension in the word interdisciplinarity that w one is that one that I think we're all cautious of is, is imposing an, an unmed, uh, un, un, undigested yeah. and unsuitable method onto material merely for the sake of a funding application or for sounding modish. Mm -hmm. um, um, like the word modernism itself, it's a useful description of a certain practices. It has a historical framework. It's also a really good book on a title because there's a certain kind of, uh, whereas maybe Victorian doesn't have that, or Victorian now does have that because it's been rehabilitated in certain mm -hmm. ways. But I'm, I'm more interested myself in thinking about 
interdisciplinary interdisciplinarity as a product of a dissatisfaction with the ways we understand cultural objects uh, or, 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 or ways of thinking that, that are not our own, um, either as academic uh, or as modern people who don't think. That's my, that's my gloss on, on what I think it's doing. Do you want to come back on that? Well, I'm just thinking, I, I, I take all that, and I'm sure that's, that's right, but th there is uh, the possibility of a rather odd logical loop in some of the, and, and not all these essays seem to me to be free from it, um, where you uh, you do English literature, you have a great deal of experience. You, I'm thinking, wow, you have a great deal of experience and reading behind you. You notice that uh, in some of the material there is, let's say, a cultural object, uh, the motor car, or thinking back to Rouen mirrors. Okay. <coughs> And then you say to yourself, well, what we should do is look at the history of the motor car and of mirrors. So you write six paragraphs about that. And then you say, are these things reflected in literature? And of course they bloody are, because that's where the idea came from in the first place. What would be actually a much more powerful question, if you're an historian, would be to say, what are the salient features of the period that are not reflected in literature? The Jane Austen question. Mm -hmm. And one of the problems about that particular loop is I think it sort of bypasses mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that difficulty. Mm -hmm. But I think there is um, uh, maybe the problem with the whole notion of reflection in the first place, mm -hmm. that it's a model that is deeply flawed if we're only looking for ways in which literature might reflect science or, I mean, we need different models, it seems to me. Mm -hmm. And it's not just a reactive thing. But then what is the problematic? What is one trying to explain? Has, hasn't Gillian Beer, she, she's written a lot on literature and science, and she approached it from the other point of view, which is how, how, particularly in the 19th century, what was going on in literature that then influenced scientific thinkers mm. and scientists mm -hmm. in the period, and she, and she seemed to get away from that one-dimensional, reflective mm -hmm. way of thinking about things. Mm. I think it, it, it just assumes that certain things come first in the culture more widely, and literature sort of picks up on them, and it, absolutely, I think that's... That's where Gillian's work does challenge that. Yeah. I mean, I suppose that one should say something about the slightly odd ways in which all these books are constructed, because Kirsten and Michelle and I, you know, sat down and obviously mm -hmm. we we set out a, a sort of plan for for the book and what we wanted people to cover, and then we thought of people who would be good to fit that, and then they write their chapter with some um, sort of shooting script from us, but then they make it very much their own. But there would be many different ways of carving mm. up the cake, and, and you know, the, 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 these books, such books, will always they will give you a wider sense of the period, perhaps with more more facets to it. But it will never have that um, powerful drive of the of the single the single argument. Um, mm. So I don't know if that's what you're thinking, Michael. In some ways, that that that, that, that there is a sort of contingency or arbitrariness about the way that the, the cake I just is get cut. That, that, an echo of that occasionally. Mm. Mm. Um, mm. Uh, I, I, I wonder if we should. Yeah, I just had a quick query, yes. query um, or a question or comment. Mm. Um, about how these things look when one steps out of a linguistic space or a linguistic culture, because if we were having this conversation in France, our boundaries would be different. So we'd be mm -hmm. talking about the Third Republic or the Second Empire, or if we were in Germany. And I, I'm I'm very interested in the way that you've identified, uh, Charlotte, uh, identified periodization 
to me, the other great challenge to any form of literary study is the nation and the way in which the nation is not a terribly useful... Well, it's very useful because we found it so productive, but simultaneously an enormous stumbling block when it comes to thinking about who's in, who's out, who writes in what language. And I wondered how you... I, I get glimpses of this in this book, in the range... And, but I'm interested in it. Is Freud in here because he's actually a representative of German language, culture, and the fin de siècle there? Or is he accommodated into Englishness through his relocation mm-hmm. and then his rapid assimilation through translation? And I, I, I wonder how your the, the, uh, uh, Charlotte's summary of the challenges period map onto the other great um, issue we are facing mm-hmm. with is, is borders and the nation and the language and who sure. speaks on behalf of what to the complete world literature yeah. question which is exercising a lot of us in, mm-hmm. in modern languages in English and in all kinds of fields mm-hmm. so I wondered Absolutely. Uh, yeah. that's yes. just my observation from reading the book yeah. um, yes. it would have been twice the size it would yes yes, <laughs> yes. and um, yes I mean we were obviously drawing some boundaries around that when we we have Scottish literature and mm-hmm. Celticism represented but we weren't massively say looking at something we certainly could have done in the period which is the relationship between Britain and France yeah. in terms of literary mm-hmm. culture so that that is certainly something that could be there more than it is yeah. um, similarly American literature plays only quite a small part uh, Freud comes in through the model of the death drive but that's really but the way that it's taken up by his English British interpreters, I suppose. So, uh, a, compar- a more comparativist book would carve up, carve things up really quite differently. I think. Yeah. And one of the things that's been said about the the, the rush to world literature is that it faces difference <laughs> in this rush for reading everything in English in survey courses, and that might echo some things Michael's saying about what one loses by being Catholic. And mm. as a linguist, I'm very interested in the grain and the mm. untranslatable and the moments of mm. cultural non-understanding, mm. which may be as profound as the moments of historical um, amnesia or or of, of non conversation sure. but you're right yes. no we should uh, yes I should just say we do have two, at least two chapters on on empire or more than more than two chapters on kind of em- empire writing including the essential chapter on the Indian bicycle <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and <laughs> yeah. 